Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, it's just great to be together. Some have gathered in this auditorium. Some are next door in the hub, a part of us. Some are outside under the sun who are listening. Some are online or on radio. How we thank you that we have the technology that enables all of that. We're even more thankful that your Holy Spirit can go above and transcend any barrier that we might have. If there's a barrier in our heart of any kind, we pray it would be removed and you would have the opportunity to share with us, with our hearts, your truth, your secrets, your will. In Jesus' name, amen. We hate it whenever we hear stories of injustice where the criminal goes free and The bad guy doesn't get caught. The good guy gets victimized. On the other hand, we love it whenever we hear stories of the bad guy getting caught and justice being served. I heard a story about a man from Charlotte, North Carolina, who bought a box of very rare and expensive cigars. And then when he bought them, he took out an insurance policy on those cigars and insured them, among other things, against fire. (laughs) Within one month, after having smoked all of those fine, expensive cigars, and before he had even made one premium payment on his policy, he filed a claim against the insurance company. And I'll read you the story. In the claim, he stated the cigars were lost in a, quote, series of small fires, close quote. The insurance company refused to pay, citing the obvious reason that the man had consumed the cigars in the normal fashion. The man sued and won. In delivering the ruling, the judge agreed with the insurance company that the claim was frivolous, But the judge stated, nevertheless, the man held a policy from the company in which it had warranted the cigars were insurable and also guaranteed it would insure them against fire without defining what is considered to be unacceptable fire and was obligated to pay the claim. Rather than endure a lengthy and costly appeal process, the insurance company accepted the ruling and paid fifteen thousand dollars to the man for his loss of the rare cigars in the fires. We read that and we go, man, we don't like that. But hold on, the best part is yet to come. After the man cashed the check, the insurance company had him arrested on 24 counts of arson. With his own insurance claim and the testimony from the previous case being used against him, the man was convicted of intentionally burning his insured property and was sentenced to 24 months in jail 
and a $24,000 fine. (laughs) Yeah, baby. We love those stories. The worst crime ever committed was selling out the Son of God for about 25 bucks, 30 pieces of silver. No one in the room that night had any idea that it was Judas. No one had any clue it was Judas Iscariot until, until this night. On this night, Jesus will declare to his disciples, at least to one of them, John, and then Peter, who it was. Now, Judas is a wonderful name. Judas comes from the word Judah, which means praise. It's a great name to have. I'm sure that when he was born, his parents thought, our hopes is that this child will grow up to praise the Lord. But as time went on, the name Judas would appear in dictionaries. They're still there today. As a noun, a synonym for a traitor, a Judas is someone who betrays a friend or a comrade. Of all the baby dedications I've ever done, I've done a lot, I have never yet dedicated a Judas. There's just certain names people stay away from. No parent in their right mind would name their child Judas because of what this one person did 2,000 years ago. In England, there was an old tradition on Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent, of taking a jack-o'-lantern figure, dragging it out through the streets, and then shooting it to pieces. And that figure was called Judas. In Spain and in Portugal and in Latin America, there's in some places still the practice of taking a lifelike straw or wood figure, taking it through the streets, kicking it, spitting on it, cursing at it, etc., etc., And that is called, on Good Friday, punishing Judas. So we're going to read about Judas Iscariot, the man who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And we're going to eavesdrop on a conversation that our Lord has with his most intimate friends in John chapter 13. Judas, the man who betrayed Jesus, the betrayer of Christ. What a horrible word that is, betrayal. Marriages are split apart because of betrayal. Friendships are severed because of betrayal. Nations have split and wars have begun because of betrayal. Interesting, this week I was in a grocery store getting a few items and as I was waiting to make the payment, my eyes went left and I glanced at those magazines, those very reliable magazines, news magazines. And I don't know the names of the magazines, but what struck me is that On three different magazines, the word betrayal appeared. There were three totally different stories. One was called Lies and Betrayal. The other one was called Bachelor Betrayed. And the other one was simply Betrayal. As we look at our paragraph, beginning in John 13, at verse 18, there's three things I want you to notice with me about this paragraph. Number one is the prediction that Jesus makes of the betrayal that is going to happen. Jesus selects an Old Testament scripture out of Psalms, shows that it was fulfilled in what Judas was about to do. He predicts it. He knew all about it. Number two, I want you to notice the paradox of betrayal. 
that as bad as it was, it would still be used to serve the disciples, those who didn't betray Jesus. It was going to be used for something good. Third and finally, I want you to notice the proximity of the betrayer himself and where he was at the table. Let's begin in verse 18. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But that the scripture may be fulfilled, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. What interests us at first is that Jesus was not surprised that Judas was about to betray him. In fact, Jesus pulls out a scripture that shows that it was predicted by something that happened in the Old Testament. Now he's quoting Psalm 41. And let me tell you about Psalm 41. David wrote that psalm. And he wrote it about a man that he loved, a man that was his friend, a man that sat at his table and had his own bread, but a man who betrayed David by the name of Ahithophel. Ahithophel, the trusted counselor of David. You remember the story how David had a son named Absalom who rebelled and tried to usurp the kingdom. But if there was one person David knew he could trust, it was one of his closest associates named Ahithophel. But Ahithophel was a traitor. By the way, afterwards went out and hung himself like Judas would. It's a very interesting story. And the idea of lifting up your heel is to kick a person while he's down. If what Absalom would do to David wasn't bad enough, Ahithophel kicked David while he was down. It's a violent kicking. It's like when your enemy's on the ground and you lift up your, your boot heel and you thrust it into his throat, into his neck. That's the idea of betrayal here. Now, why is this important and why does John bring it up? Here's why. Jesus Christ knew everything that was going on around him at all times. He was omniscient, right? One of the things we discover in the Gospel of John is he wants us to know that Jesus was in total control. Nothing surprised him. He wasn't some helpless victim of an unsuspecting crime. He knew it all in advance. He was omniscient. And so, think back a few chapters to John chapter 5 when Jesus was interviewing a woman at the well of Samaria. And she was giving him cute little answers and trying to be really smart and terse. And finally, Jesus just cut to the chase and said, Hey, go call your husband. And she said, I don't have a husband. And then Jesus went for the juggler. You're right, you've had five husbands in your lifetime, and now you're living with a man outside the bonds of marriage with a man who is not your husband. Boy, did she sober up quick. She said, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Yeah, duh, what gave it away? In Luke chapter 6, Jesus is in the synagogue, and there's people watching him because in that synagogue was a man with a withered hand. And they, were, they wanted to see if Christ would heal that man. And the Bible says Jesus, listen to this, knowing their thoughts, said, which is it better to do on the Sabbath day? Heal life or to destroy it? To do good or to do evil? On another occasion, Matthew chapter 12, there was a man who was demon-possessed. He was mute. He was deaf. Jesus healed him, delivered him of a demon. 
And as soon as that man was cured and Jesus delivered him, some of the uh, audience said, Oh, this man, Jesus, just cast demons out by the name of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Once again, we read this. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, A house that is divided against itself cannot stand. So once again here, he knew that Judas was going to betray him. Can you imagine living like that? Knowing every bad thing that's going to happen to you in the future or around you? Knowing that child is going to get into that horrible traffic accident. Knowing that that parent is going to come down with that disease. Knowing that Peter is going to deny you. Knowing that Thomas is going to doubt you. Knowing that Judas is going to betray you. Can you imagine living that way? Jesus knew it all. And here's what I want you to see. Just because Jesus knew what was coming, that didn't soften the blow for him. Look at verse 21. When Jesus had said these things... He was troubled in spirit. There's that word again, troubled, terasso, to be shaken, agitated emotionally. And he testified and he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. You know, sometimes we so emphasize the deity of Jesus Christ that we neglect to think about his humanity. We say, well, you know, he's God in a human body, so he knew everything that was happening, and and somehow he was detached from all the bad stuff and sort of aloof from it. It, it, He wasn't bothered by some of the things you and I are bothered with. It's not true. He lived in that awareness, but he was deeply troubled and agitated. As the writer of Hebrews put it in Hebrews 4, he was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. So that's what he knew. What I also want you to notice is what Jesus did. Look at one word in verse 18, the word chosen. I do not speak concerning all of you, for I know whom I have chosen. Now that's a word of sovereign election. He knew that not everybody in that group believed, and Judas was that one. I know whom I have chosen. But And I don't want to get sidetracked on on that, because we've talked about divine election on other occasions. But... Jesus certainly gave Judas lots of opportunities to believe and Jesus had chosen Judas to be in that elite group called apostles. Of all of the disciples, he was one of the apostles. Listen carefully as I read a portion of Luke chapter 6. Jesus went out to a mountain to pray and he continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to himself, and from them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. Question. If Jesus knew what Judas was going to do to him, why did Jesus choose him as an apostle to begin with? If Jesus spent all night in prayer to the Father before choosing the twelve, why was Judas on the list? Well, there's two reasons. Reason number one is what's stated in the text, to fulfill Scripture. Jesus lived in that total awareness of what is happening, and he knew this was to fulfill Scripture. Here was the mechanism, this betrayer, this betrayal, by which Jesus would go to the cross to pay for the sin of the world. Number two, reason number two, more on a human level. 
To love anyone at all is to be vulnerable. To love anyone at all is to take risks, even if it means being hurt. I had someone ask me one time, well, Skip, I I, I really want to love someone, but, but how can I know if I make a commitment in love to another person, I want to make sure I don't get hurt. How can I be certain I don't get hurt? My answer, good luck with that one. In fact, I think that's impossible because as the old song says, love hurts. And if you're going to commit yourself in a relationship to any other person, like let's say a marriage relationship, there is going to be pain somewhere along that road. That's why people say vows to each other. They don't say, for better or for best, for richer or for richest, until we all live happily ever after in the white picket fence. No, because to love an ideal, anybody can love an ideal person. The challenge is to love the real person. And in that giving of love, there is a vulnerability and a pain that you incur. I suppose Jesus could have been like Donald Trump and said, Judas, you're fired. And all the apostles said, yeah, at least we're not. Celebrity apostle. truth is you will be betrayed. Somebody will take advantage of you. Here's the question. What do you do? Answer. Choose to love them anyway. Choose to love them anyway. I'm choosing Judas. I know he's going to betray me. It fulfills the scripture. Nobody knew that Judas was betraying Jesus until that night, which means Jesus continually showed love overtly, outwardly, publicly to Judas so that nobody caught on. Amazing. Let me tell you a true story about the alcoholic wife of a Christian husband. This wife had an affair with this man's best friend 10 years prior. He didn't find out about it for 10 years. When he found out about it, he was angry. He was bitter. He felt betrayed by his wife and betrayed by his best friend. He thought, my family's fallen apart because of her. The kids are distanced to her. Everything that I've loved is broken apart because of this horrible situation. He felt so angry and so betrayed. I want you to listen to this man and what his reaction was the first time he met his best friend after knowing this information. He said, I suddenly remembered the words, Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so he said, With a sob in my soul, I reached out my hand and I grabbed his. And for the first time in my life, I knew what it was to forgive. I felt a tremendous sense of release as the unbearable weight of bitterness was lifted from off my heart. This freedom enabled me to renew my love for my wife and to overcome the barrier that had arisen between us. When I said to her, I forgive you, And I will accept you just as I did when I pledged to love and to cherish you until death. It was then that the healing process began its wonderful work. Do you understand that that man had to make a choice that he didn't feel like making, but he made that choice and that began a healing process in his life. So here is Jesus knowing all about Judas, showing it's been predicted even in the Old Testament, choosing to love anyway. That's number one. 
the prediction of betrayal. Second thing I'd like you to notice is the paradox of betrayal. Look at verse 19. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. He's saying to his disciples around that table, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Now these are amazing words. These are Romans 8.28 kind of words. There's such tremendous lessons in this. There's three benefits, Jesus would say, to me telling you this in advance. Reason number one, or benefit number one, is that it will produce a greater trust in me, your Savior. Notice that Jesus said, when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am He. He didn't say, now I'm going to tell you who the betrayer is so that when you find out, you can take him outside and beat the living daylights out of him. Peter would have loved that. No, I'm going to tell you in advance so that when you understand and see this thing coming to pass before your very eyes, all of the claims that I have made about myself all of these years I've been with you, you'll know they're true. Basically, this is exactly what God in the Old Testament does. God in the Old Testament challenges all of the false gods and goddesses the people were worshiping who were false gods. And he basically says, okay, can you guys predict the future? Because I can. And people can know that I am real because of my ability to predict the future before it happens. So listen to Isaiah chapter 41. God says to the false gods and goddesses, declare to us things that are to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know that you are gods. In other words, put your prophecy where your mouth is. If you think you're gods and we're to believe in you, you tell us the future because that's what I can do. And by the way, that's the purpose of prophecy. The purpose of prophecy isn't to satisfy curious minds about the future so they can draw colorful charts, eschatological charts, at the end of books, but rather to drive us to trust God even more. There's a second reason that sort of follows up on the first one. Not only will it produce a greater trust in the Savior, it produces a greater trust in the Scripture. Jesus quotes Psalm 41. says, see, this has been predicted long before it happened. This happened to David with Ahithophel. And as there was Ahithophel who betrayed David, so Judas will betray me, Jesus. Now this is, this is what happened to the apostles. After all the smoke cleared, after Jesus' death and burial came His resurrection and then His ascension into heaven, and after all of that emotional smoke cleared, all of that confusion, you got to know that those apostles went right back to their Old Testament scriptures and started studying them. Well, what else could be fulfilled? Well, what else is written about? And as you start listening to their sermons in the book of Acts and reading their letters in the New Testament, that's exactly what they did. They start realizing that so much of this was spoken of in advance and their love for the Scripture went sky high. And that's one of the side benefits here. Fulfilled prophecy transforms the way we look at the Scripture. It showcases its reliability. I think it's safe to say that everybody in this room right now realizes that we're in pretty unstable times in the world, right? If you've seen a news broadcast in the last month, even one of them, you realize that 
we've been in economic downturn in our country and around the world for some time, number one. Number two, there seems to be political freefall happening over in the Middle East, nation after nation after nation. We can't even keep track of it. Then there's an earthquake and a tsunami in Japan, and experts are saying, depending on what happens with those four reactors, it could become the worst catastrophe in our recorded history. It has that potential. So what do you do in unstable times like that? What, what enables you and I to marshal through these times with confidence and a smile, knowing where we're going? It's this book. It's the Scriptures. It's the Word of God. It, it drives us back to the Scriptures. It drives us back to the Word of God, and we see, hey, this was talked about, and we're seeing a fulfillment of it around us. Parents, let me encourage you. If you're going to leave something to your children, leave them the confident lifestyle that comes from believing the book that God has given. Leave them that. Pass that on to them. Well, I want to make sure they have a good education and a healthy bank account. Okay, cool. That could be lost tomorrow. But give them something that will outlast. And that is a confidence in the Word of God. One of my favorite stories is about John Newton. John Newton, raised in a Christian home, His parents died when he was a child, six years of age. Both parents died. His parents, up until age six, had been giving him scriptures, helping him memorize scripture. Parents dies at age six. At age six, he goes to live with a relative. Doesn't get along with the relative. Has a hard teenage life, as you can imagine, the loss of both parents. He decides to join the British Navy. Uh, As a teenager, so he's in the British Navy, he's really not good. He went AWOL, left the Navy, joins the slave trade. Now he's trafficking in human slave trade around the world, making money off of them. Long story short, after years of working with slaves, he's coming home to England on a boat. The boat encounters a storm. He thinks he's going to die. As he's going under, all of those scriptures that his parents taught him as a young child come flashing into his mind. He hadn't thought about them for years Not only do those scriptures come to mind, but he understood what they meant for the first time. And he cries out to God. God spares his life. He gets home to England, gives his life to Christ. And John Newton gave us one of the most amazing songs, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. What his parents planted in that young man's heart blossomed later on. Greater trust in the Savior. It'll give you a greater trust in the Scripture. And number three, the paradox of this betrayal. The side benefit, the third one, a greater thrust in their service. Look at verse 20. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. What on earth is that statement doing there? That's what I said when I first read it this week. I thought... That doesn't seem to fit here. This is sort of disconnected. It doesn't seem to fit what has gone on before and what comes afterwards. I mean, he's just, he's just predicted who's going to betray him. And then he says, now, whoever I send, he's like, uh, excuse me? What's going on here? Now follow this. Jesus has been announcing his death. That didn't settle well with the disciples. Now he announces his betrayal among that group. That, that casts a, a discouragement upon the group, a wet blanket of emotional discouragement. And they're probably thinking, oh man, 
there's a betrayer in our group? Well, this whole thing then is going down. I mean, uh, maybe there's no future. There's no hope at all. I mean, there's no chance at all for any kind of service beyond this. We're we're going down. And, And if one man, if one person among us can betray Jesus, maybe all of us could do that. Maybe it's all over. And what Jesus is saying to them is, Oh, no, this doesn't change things one bit. In fact, I'm going to send you out so that anybody who receives you, it's as if they have received me personally and my father personally. Your position is so important. Jesus lifts them up right before their eyes and says, your position, your, your importance to my plan is so valued that if people receive you, it's as if they receive God himself. The betrayal of one person should not diminish our responsibility or our calling. You see, that's sort of what happens. People go, well, there's so many hypocrites in the church. I've heard that for so long. Yeah, I went to church 40 years ago, and one Sunday I met a hypocrite. That's all I needed. I've never been back since. Are you nuts? Yeah, I agree. One hypocrite is one too many. But rather than seeing a hypocrite or somebody who would betray Jesus, rather than running away, what it should cause you to do is run toward Him. To sort of dig your heels in and go, Man, I want to serve the Lord with even greater thrust than ever before. Let me tell you a little personal story. When I was going to college for radiology, I had a friend who went to seminary. Shows up at my house one day, my apartment. Knocks on the door. Opens his trunk, pulls out a bunch of books that he had gotten in seminary and decides he's going to give them to me. Well, I was in... I was stoked. I wanted all the books that he had to offer. But I said, now, why are you giving them to me? Is it that you're done with them? He goes, I don't believe anymore. You mean you don't believe anymore? He had gone to this liberal seminary that told him why he shouldn't believe all the books he was reading and why he shouldn't believe the Bible and why he shouldn't believe Christ. And he emerged from that liberal institution not knowing what he believed, and so confused, he just said, I don't believe anymore, you can have all this stuff. When he left, I bowed my head and I said, Lord, I want to stay closer to Jesus and serve Him more and tell more people because I don't want to end up like that. And so what Jesus is telling them after He says, there's a betrayer here, and the Scripture even predicts it. Before they can go, oh, man, he just lifts them up and says, ah, but in the midst of a betrayer, there are ambassadors that I will send out, and he acknowledges the importance of that position. Now, let me close with one final piece of this. We've seen the prediction of betrayal, the paradox of betrayal. And I want to close with this. The proximity of the betrayer. Now watch this, verse 21. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of you. According to Matthew, when they heard that, they started asking, Is it I? Is it I? Lord, is it I? Even Judas said, Is it I? Hypocrite. And the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Who's that? That's John. He's the author of the book. I'm the guy that Jesus loved. (laughs) 
not saying Jesus didn't love anybody else. He's just thrilled that Jesus loved him. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Sounds just like Peter. Find out who it is. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. Nobody suspected Judas. For some thought that because Judas had the money box that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately and it was night. Now to understand this, do you remember where I told you last week and maybe a couple weeks before that, that rather than thinking of the Last Supper like Leonardo da Vinci painted it with Jesus standing or sitting there in a chair and all the disciples sitting next to him on these chairs, that they reclined when they ate. They, they laid on the left side on a pillow or on a couch of some kind. So they were leaning on the left arm. The head would be leaning toward the left. Their right hand would be free to eat. And they were all around a U-shaped table known as a triclinium. A triclinium. The host, Jesus, would have been right in the middle of that U at the bottom or at the top, depending on how you want to look at it. He'd be right there in the middle. On his right-hand side was John. Now, whoever sat at the right hand and the, and the left hand of a host at the Passover were the guests of honor. Now, John... His mother, a couple days before that, said, Jesus, I want to make sure my two boys sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in the kingdom. They might not get that wish, but at least John is sitting at the right hand at the Last Supper. And so John is leaning on his left toward Jesus. And if you were at one end of the table looking down, it would appear as if John's head was leaning against Jesus' breast. That's why when John wanted to talk to Jesus, all he had to do is do this. And he was right at his heart, right at his face, real close. They were leaning toward each other. So here's Jesus. On his right hand is John. Next to John is Peter, because Peter whispers to John, find out who it is. Well, that would have been a scene. We find out what Peter did when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and he cut off the guy's ear. He'd have been all over Judas that night. He'd jumped over the table and been all over him like white on rice. Peter wants to find out who it is. John says, Lord, who is it? Jesus says, the one that I dip the morsel and give it to. Who would that be? Verse 26. It is he to whom I give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And he dipped the bread and gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. What that means is that Simon, or is that Judas was sitting at the left hand of Jesus. If John was leaning in toward Jesus' breast... Jesus was leaning his head in toward Judas's breast. Now, those two places of honor had to be given by the host. So I presume before the dinner began, Jesus walks up to John and says, Johnny, I want you sitting at my right hand tonight. I know your mom wants you to have that in the kingdom, but tonight you're going to sit next to me in the Last Supper. And he walked over to Judas. Judas, he knew all about Judas. He knew all about the betrayal. Judas... 
I want you in this place of honor at my left hand right next to me. So that Jesus Christ was leaning in toward Judas's heart, which is where he wanted to be. It was Jesus' way of reaching out to Judas all the way unto the end, giving him his love, his mercy, his forgiveness. Friend, I want you next to me tonight. And he would have, as a, as a token of honor, given him the morsel. And Judas would have taken it and then passed it down the line. If you were to describe where you are with God right now, would you say that you're like John leaning toward Jesus? Or you're like Judas leaning away from Jesus? Where are you at? Notice how it ends, this paragraph. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out and out immediately, and it was night. I don't think John just threw that and it was night in because he wants you to know that the sun had set. And if you're going to go outside tonight, bring a torch with you. Knowing the way John writes, he uses the metaphor of light and darkness a lot, right? Chapter 1, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. And he uses this, he's the only one who points out that Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. So for John to say, and it was night, I think what John wants you to know is that darkness had settled on Judas's soul and that any movement away from Christ is stepping into darkness. Satan had entered him, he left the room, and it was night. Question as we close. Is darkness creeping over your heart, over your soul? Is it night in your soul? If so, let me just say that Jesus, like with Judas, is still reaching out and will ever reach out until the very bitter end. I close with a story I read this week. It comes from the Revolutionary War. There was a preacher during the Revolutionary War named Peter Miller, very effective, godly man. Well, he had an enemy. He had several, but there was one that stood out. He was an unbelieving man who hated Peter Miller's preaching, hated his testimony. And um, this unbeliever was eventually arrested and charged with treason and sentenced to hang. When Peter Miller found out about this, he walked 60 miles, six zero miles, to appeal that man's case before the president, President George Washington. Washington looked over the appeal and he says, I'm sorry, based on the evidence for treason, I cannot release your friend. Peter Miller said, my friend? He's my worst living enemy. Washington put his pen down, looked up and said, you mean to tell me you walked 60 miles for the release, not of your friend, but of your enemy? The reverend said, that's right. Washington said, well, that puts it in a whole different light. I'll grant your request. I release him into your recognizance. Miller went to the place where the execution was about to take place, got there just in time. They were putting the man up on the scaffolding. The noose was set. And when that unbelieving man saw that preacher out in the crowd, he said, Ah, old Peter Miller, come to take revenge and watch his enemy die. Not knowing that in his hand was a signed pardon for his release. And he walked up on that scaffold and gave it to him. 
Whatever you think of Jesus Christ, oh, He wants to just sort of mess my life up and ruin everything I'm, I'm all about, my fun. Know that in His hand is your pardon and it could change your life. But you've got to receive it. And I don't know if you're leaning toward Him today, if you're leaning away from Him. But if you're leaning away from Him, He so seeks to draw you into His heart and get inside your heart. Let's pray for that. Father in heaven, as we close our service, we think of what this could personally mean to some here who aren't walking with Christ, who have heard the name and have even decided to be among the company of those who believe and love that name. But they themselves have not personally trusted in Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that as you reach out your pardon to them this morning, wanting them to be brought to that place of honor, your guest of honor, I pray that some would receive Jesus. Some would come back to Christ. If they have been moving away from Him, they would come back to Him. Some, perhaps, have just played the part. They played the religious part. Singing the songs, owning a Bible, coming to the place of worship. It's just not real in their daily life. Would you do your work of drawing that man, that woman, that boy, that girl, that young one, that middle-aged one, that older one, to you, to your side, to your heart? I know that you stand at the door of our hearts and you knock. And I pray that some would open the door. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.